Thanks for joining us today on the Port City Church podcast. With multiple campuses existing within Southeastern North Carolina, our mission is to be helpful and hopeful as we reach people and help them walk with God. To learn more about the heart behind our church, we encourage you to visit us at portcity.church. Good morning. Uh, don't have time for any Christmas tree updates, uh, nor uh, any comments about college football. We got some things we want to, uh, important things we want to deal with today. Uh, today we are wrapping up the very end of the season we've been in since the fall launched, talking about our reach. And what we mean when we say reach people and help them walk with God, we're not talking about strategies uh, in which we can grow bigger, get bigger, get more people to attend. We're talking about the condition of our heart. We believe that reach, our reach, measures what we are willing to care about. We've been talking about these three specific things of care, connection, and then finally over the last three weeks and wrapping up today on this idea of goodness and trying to understand what it is, what it means to us. And today I want for us to get a vision of what it would look like um, if if we were to get a, get a vision of what it would look like if this were the reality for us, what we brought to the world. And so if you have your Bibles, you're gonna look in Isaiah chapter 65, that will be later on, but that's, where, that's part of where I have been uh, kind of just wrestling with uh, for quite some time since the summer, trying to think about this and understand this. And we've been talking about the last uh, few weeks that goodness isn't just about our good works. It's not just about what we, uh, you know, what things we decide we want to do. That goodness has a source. And we have said that the source of goodness is love. And when I say that the source, you know, that love is the source of goodness, what I mean isn't just that this sort of love is love kind of idea, but I mean very specifically, I'm talking about God's love. There is a, something that's required of us. There's an image-bearing aspect to this that, that what we have been called to has uh, an authority in us. And specifically what we've mentioned is two ideas. Number one is we said that to live in this way of life requires a rule. There's something that governs us, something that governs your activities and there's also a will. It's the choices that you make and your willingness to be responsible um, within this so that God's love is the source of goodness. And then part of what we have to ask ourselves is then is what, does, what does goodness look like in the world? And the idea we've been looking at is we've said this, that the expression of goodness is this idea of reconciliation. Reconciliation. God's heart is for the world to be reconciled, for us to be reconciled to Him and therein to be reconciled to one another. We read this from last week, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. All of this is from God, he says. This whole thing that He's after, this, this redemption of all things is from God, who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and has given us this same ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself through Christ. And this last part is important. That not counting people's sins against them. This is a really important thing for us to consider how this goes into reconciliation. And as I think about this in my journal, I draw it like this. I'm gonna use a different color just because it might show up better. But that what God longs to do, that's a good color. 
is he, he longs to sort of reconcile or return this broken world, this, this thing that's kind of been shattered along the way. And he requires to take all the pieces and to put them back together where everything that he has intended from the beginning is once again rightly related to, in the way that he's intended. And the, the Hebrew word is this idea of shalom. It means it's, it's, it's shalom is not peace that this absence of conflict. Shalom is this return or this way of life where everything is rightly related to everything else, where we live under the authority, under the rule, the will of, of God, and we exercise his intention and bear his image in the world that we are rightly related to God. And out of that rightly, uh, that rightened relationship, everything else becomes possible. And so it starts with this, God's love. What is it? There's a passage I want to read. And a lot of us read this or had this read at weddings and it's popular at weddings. It's a good verse to read at weddings because it's beautiful. Uh, it's written oftentimes when we sort of, uh, and it's like when you, when you put this on your Instagram, it's got like some flowers or maybe it was cross-stitched in your grandmother's house. And it's always like this kind of pretty thing. And it goes like this. If I speak with the tongues of angels, of men and angels, but do not have love, I'm only a, a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have faith that can move mountains, but I don't have love, I am nothing. If I give all of, my, all of I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy, it does not boast. Love is not proud. Love does not dishonor another. Love does not dishonor another. Love is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. Love is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Dang it, right? Love does not delight in evil. It doesn't delight in the misgivings of what's happening in our world, even to those that we oppose or those that oppose us. It just doesn't do that. It rejoices with the truth. Love always, love bears all things, love believes all things, love hopes all things, love endures all things, love never fails. That reads really beautiful in a wedding ceremony, doesn't it? Because everyone's like, oh, this is so beautiful. But we all know that the way to get things done, right? You can't always be kind and you can't always be kept patient, right? You know what I'm talking about? Sometimes you just have to, oh. And what we've got to wrestle with is what we actually believe about what God has established and what sources the kind of lives we want to live. And more importantly, what sources the kind of lives that he's created us to live. The kind of image-bearing way in which your life and my life comes to bear on the world around us. When I talk about the source of, God's, of, of goodness being God's love, I don't just mean that it's the source of the goodness that we see in the world. So we, we see things, oh, that's so beautiful. Of course, that's God's love. I mean, it is also the source of the goodness that we do not yet see. 
you gotta think about this. There's a lot of places where God's goodness is not seen, where goodness is not happening, where goodness is not a reality. And the question is, does the way you and I live, does it have bearing on bringing goodness into places where goodness isn't yet experienced or seen? Would we be a part of returning God's intention in the places that we live, in the places that we exist? This is, this is the challenge for us. I want to give, again, paint some vision for this because our definition of goodness is this. Goodness isn't just our activities. Goodness is the fruit that flows out of our lives when God's love overflows in them. Goodness is a fruit. It's not something we manufacture. It comes from somewhere. All of this sounds really good, but I'm not sure that we always grasp the implications of what this kind of return would look like. When we began this series, I suggested that what God longs to do is to return us to the original good that he intended when he created. And he said, all that he had made, he said, oh, this is good. And then at the pinnacle of this, he created uh, human beings. He said, this is very good. This the way that I've created things. This is very good. And this is how he longs for us to live and what he longs to return to the world, I believe, in which we live in this sort of reunion of heaven and earth and what he longs to do. We don't grasp this, I think, both in what's available in terms of the actual beauty of this way of life, because all of us have had experiences where you were good to somebody, good to somebody. I'm not really sure what word I just said there. It sounded kind of weird in my head. Where you were good, where you extended yourself, and then someone took advantage of you and burned you. Have you ever had that happen? And you just learn that dadgummit, you just can't be good to people all the time. You just can't do this all the time because people will take advantage of you. And you know what the truth is? Yes, people will take advantage. Every time we extend ourselves to other people in the kind of ways that I believe God intends and the kind of ways that have the possibility to bring this to bear, there is a risk and there will always be a risk that you will be taken advantage of, that we will be taken advantage of. The question is, are we willing to take that risk and to what degree are we willing to risk our efforts to preserve either the fact that we'll never be taken advantage of or to risk bringing God's image to bear in the way that he intends for us to be? We don't grasp this kind of life, both in the beauty that's available to us and also in what it costs us, what it costs us. Everybody knows that to be patient and kind doesn't always get the job done. And it's in those moments we've got to decide what's going to govern us. What's going to govern your activity in the world in which you live, in the world in which you contribute to? And then secondly, is are we willing to take responsibility for the choices and the actions of our lives and what they bring to bear on the world around us? As a culture, the answer to that question is a resounding no. But for us, for a people, right, who belong to God, could it be that we see the world and do things slightly differently? This isn't about trying to produce a guilt trip that's not at all my intentions, but rather I want us to get a vision of what it could be like if we were to trust this. It requires something from us and it requires for us to be different. So the question that I begin to ask is what then does it mean to live inside of the rule of God's love? And that's what I would put right here. I would say in this place, and this is how I always think of it. It's the rule of love. It's a way of life under the rule of God's love. 
And so what does it look like to live under this rule and out of this kind of will? The answer is actually quite simple. It looks like this. You realize in the beginning, before the fall, God allowed a certain tension to exist. Most of us just overlook this because it's just not part of how we think about it. There was a tension in the garden that was exploited by the serpent. I mean, think about this. The tension was a tension that if, if someone came in and suggested there would be another way to live, that it would actually be believed and therein undermine the trust that they had with God that was intended in the beginning, that somehow there was this tension of trust that remained, that was given, that was allowed. It was a part of what God created and a part of what God called good. The capacity to choose or to reject is the thing that God called good. And this is why, because what God has intended to do all along is to live in a relationship with his people. I think this goes, everybody wants to talk about free choice or predestination or all these things. I think this goes way beyond either one of those poles. I think this goes to the fact this was actually God's intention and as a direct connection to the thing that he believed or said or proclaimed was good about the relationship of God and the humans that he had created. It is to live in love, which means it is the essence of God's character for us to have the chance to respond to him or to reject him because what he is asking us, what was good about that was that we would be able to live in a relationship with him and the currency of a relationship is always trust. This is what God is always asking of us. Are we willing to trust him? And so this brings us into a really important sort of understanding of what this looks like as we begin to trust. And God has said to us that he so loved the world, he's inviting us to do the same. How can we trust him enough to do that when it is within our reach or our grasp to force things to happen, to force things to happen? Love is a source to be sure. It sources good things. It sources beautiful things. But love is also a force. Love acts on something. Love acts on something. I, I, I kind of joke with a lot of times, whenever people ask me, if, especially on an airplane, if you're gonna be sitting next to someone for a long time, I avoid telling people what I do as long as I possibly can. And usually what happens is they're talking and they're saying a bunch of stuff and they're telling a bunch of stories that I, they think that I'm gonna think are cool, using a lot of colorful language, a lot of things, all these kind of cool things. Then they say, what do you do for a living? I said, I work at a church. What, what do you do? I said, I'm a pastor. They go, oh man, I'm so sorry for all the things that I just said in front of you. Which, which, but here's the thing, it's, it's not about me, you know this, right? But there's some perception that people have about God or this goodness that they sort of have violated in their own sense of whatever it is that they're doing, they feel bad about. They feel like they need, because because this, this thing acts on something. It acts on something. Remember in 2015, a young man walks into the Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina, while a group was praying. Remember this? Uh, racist murder kills nine African-Americans praying one of whom was the pastor's wife. He comes out immediately and his call is for forgiveness. That somehow the love of God in his life compels him to forgive because he understands that the work of reconciliation happens when we learn 
that God has made a way where our sins no longer divide and conquer. And he leads out of this. And what his, this act of love does, it disrupts everything. No one can understand how can you think like this? How can you be like this? How can you say this? It was your own wife. This force of God's love acts against on all of our preconceptions and all of our expectations. You should behave this way. And here comes this out of left field and something else happens. Love is a force. It acts on our, way, on our world in ways that disrupt the status quo. It acts on the, the world around us in ways that sort of subvert all the ways in which we thought the world was gonna be or the thought the way the world was at. You thought you had to be this way to get things done. And maybe perhaps there's another way. Something else is happening. When I define love, and I've thought long and hard about this, it roots out of God's love. This is not a love is love kind of idea. This has an authority and a source and it has a glory and it has a seriousness to it. And so when I was trying to think about how then do we define this sort of out of our lives, I define it this way, that love is the force that breathes worth and value into the soul of another. When we live out God's image, what we are constantly doing is breathing worth and value into other people who otherwise may sense no worth or value. And the opposite is true, to act in unloving ways is to undermine worth or undermine value, is to regard as unworthy or to regard as uh, unvalued, to, to, to undervalue or to uh, fail to value. And so we, we have to sort of think, this, it's, but it's a force that acts, it creates something, it does something in the world around us. Love acts on the world in profound ways, in ways, in fact, that actually judge us. They judge us. I want to consider this story. So Jesus tells a parable. It's, it's known as the parable of the prodigal son. It's actually not a really good title for the parable, if you know the, the story. Um, the father has two sons, an older son and a younger son. The younger son is obviously wild, creative, and crazy. He wants his father's inheritance. so He can go out and just sow his wild oats and do his own thing. You know the story? It's from Luke chapter 15. So the father agrees, gives him the inheritance, and he heads out and he um, you know, squanders it all, women and partying and all the different things. And he finally ends up, he's homeless, he's broke, and he's working for a farmer and he's actually in the, uh, the, pig, the pig pen is what it says. And he, he wants to eat the food. He's so hungry, he wants to eat the food that he's feeding to the pigs. And then he has an idea. He's like, oh my gosh, my father's servants have it better than I do. Maybe I could go back to my dad and he would just hire me on as one of his employees. All the while, what's the father been doing? Going out every day looking, waiting for his son to come back. So on this particular day, the son comes back and he sees the son, he runs to greet him. And just as the son enters into his speech, dad, I know I've squandered everything. I'm sorry, I was a terrible son and blah, blah, blah. Would you just hire me back as one of your hired hands? Would you just, before he can even get those words out of his mouth, the father drapes him in the robe and he puts the family ring on his finger and he stands him up and he says, oh, welcome home, son. My son who is dead is now alive. My son who is lost is now found. And he welcomes him back into the house and he comes up, he says, kill the, cow, uh, the fatted cow and let's throw a massive party for my son because he has returned home. And the older brother who's been there the whole time doing everything that the father asked him to do just as the father asked him to do it is ticked. You know the story? And he won't win the party. Dad comes out and is like, hey, son, like, what's, what's, what gives? He said, like, Dad, I've done everything you've asked me to do all the time, everything. And you've never once done this for me. 
The dad's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Everything that I have is, is yours. I'm not, I'm not sure the disconnect is. Why don't you come in and join the party? And he refuses to come in. What's the older son's beef? What's the problem? Think about it. There's a party. There's a life that is available to him that has been made available by the father. And he refuses to come in because of the injustice of it all. His beef is that the father is too good. His goodness has offended all of his sensibilities about the way that the world should work. We all know that judgment, I want you to read this quote. This is from Josh Butler. He preached here this summer from his book, Skeletons in God's Closet. Fantastic book. And before you read this and then email me that you disagree with it, I want you to read it, write it in your journal, think about it for a week, and then you can email me after you do that. Josh writes this, God's love in Christ is the judgment that is coming into our world or upon our world. It confronts our idolatries and our ideologies in as much as they settle for lesser things and stand opposed to what God himself longs to do, his reconciliation. It is a powerful thing for us to consider. Of course, judgment, right, is punishment. You violated this and you were punished for that. The punishment meets the crime. That is justice. That is judgment under the rule of law. But what if we are called to live in a different way? What does this do? Josh goes on, he writes this. He says that God stands opposed to all that refuses his mercy and destroys his world and all that sets itself against Christ's intention to heal the world and all that stands unrepentantly opposed to his reconciliation. These are the things that God opposes. These are the things that God stands against. So my own exploration in this uh, has led me to some really profound soul searching to consider what I really believe about the way of Jesus and what he's invited us into as a church. And it is out of that place where the hope has actually given or found new birth and a new sense of resolve. I think I shared with you that I haven't had in, in, in a decade. But Jesus invites us into a radically different way of life and under a radically different authority. Now, if I were taking notes, I would write that down. I would say, okay, there's, there's something here. There's, there's a radically different way of life where Jesus would say things like, love your enemies and do good to those who, who hate you. And turn the other cheek and, and, all, and go the extra mile and all those things. That's all out of Luke 6. There's a, there's a radically different way of life under a radically different authority. That somehow the way God comes to do things and to return things is very different than the system and the world in which I am used to and accustomed to. And am I willing to do or to consider something different? Jesus invites us into a radically different way of life and under a radically different authority. But this radical difference is actually our hope 
for the kind of change that God intends, and I believe the kind of change that we actually long for. But it's going to require something from us. It's going to require something of us. God is coming. He is good, and he is coming to redeem his world. That's what he's doing. The question would be, can we trust God's goodness enough to act in the way of his goodness? Can we trust God's love enough to act in the way of love, even when we know we can get things done quicker or faster or better or more efficiently or more effectively by forcing our hand or forcing someone else's hand? Can we bring this disruptive force into the world that acts differently, right? Think about this. If you have kids, you know this. If you come home and the kitchen is cleaned and the, you know, they're preparing dinner for you when you get home from work, you don't sit down and go, man, my kids are so good. What do you think? What's the, there's a question in your mind. What do you want? I said, oh, we just think you're wonderful parents. who just wanted to act with goodness on the culture of our home. You'd be like, whoa. Love is a force that breathes worth and value into the things where this kind of love is brought to bear. A few months ago, I, I, I sort of stumbled on this statement because I grew up, right, thinking we were going to change the world. And in your 20s, like, we're going to change the world. Then you turn 45, you realize the world is worse for your efforts. <laughs> and every generation does this. And then parents are like, we're going to raise these little world changers. And it's just like so much pressure on our kids to change the world. And I realized God didn't actually call us to change the world. He called us to love the world. And I'll tell you why we struggle with this. We've been talking about this because if we try to change the world, we can control and manipulate, manipulate and manage and force the kind of outcomes that produce the kind of change we long to see in the world. But when God says to love the world, we have to trust that his love has sufficient power through us to exact the kind of change that he longs to see in the world. We have to trust what do you suppose God is trying to get us to do or inviting us to do all the time? To trust. I get it. I get it. No one wants to like make things happen, you know, probably more than me. But what you begin to see, you see this in the beginning and you see this at the end. We're about to begin Advent season. I'll just give you a little heads up for where I've been reading with a book that I've been using to, as sort of the source of our Advent series. It's the book of Revelation. You ready for this? That's what we're doing next week. Whoa, it is not gonna be what you think, let me tell you. But it begins, the, the whole book, this whole, this whole beautiful story, the whole narrative of God's interaction with human beings begins with heaven and earth. And it ends with the, you know, in the middle when Jesus comes, he says, oh, when we pray, pray like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, how? Here on earth, as it is in heaven, there's this reunion. And then at the very end of the Bible, you know how the Bible ends? New heaven, new earth. Reconciled, returned the way God intended it to be all along. What if, what if we were to be this kind of goodness that gets brought to bear in these places where goodness 
isn't yet seen. In homes, in neighborhoods, this is how Isaiah records this. I've been Isaiah 65. Smack in the middle of the chapter. Interestingly enough, the the title or the the section heading uh, of chapter 65 is Judgment and Salvation. See, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. There's something new coming to bear on this world. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people to be prudish, snobby, condescending, and self-right. Right? Is that what it says? The people who are a part of this will be what? A joy. There'll be something to what we bring to the world around us. And this isn't sort of Pollyannic. This, this, is, this is guts and grit kind of stuff. To love people is hard. It's hard. I'll rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people and the sound of weeping and crying will be heard no more. Can you imagine a world where there just weren't any more tears? I've been reading out of Companion Planted every week. Y'all know that, right? The book that we gave out, we've been asking you to read, badgering you to read, trusting that you're reading, all those things. I'm gonna read from it again. We're almost done. If we try to love people in ways that disregard God's authority, his word, and the patterns of the kingdom, we are off course from the start. Love bears all things, it believes all things, it hopes all things, it endures all things. Love never fails. It is for us to submit ourselves to God and who he is and his image bearing uh, and, and, and formation in our own hearts as individuals and then collectively as his people. If we don't get that, everything else is just gonna be secondary. It's gonna be lesser things. So we're gonna divide up according to whatever lesser things we value the most, pick our tribes and then fight each other. There, there's, there's, this has got to be top. He goes on, he says this, Jesus has everything under control. We trust him. And here's the question. So can we surrender our impulse to control, to make things happen, to force things? Can we surrender that and be content with modeling an alternative way of living? Can we serve and influence? Can we bend the culture towards God's kingdom in ways that the scripture describes as salt, light, yeast, and fragrance? It is more loving to honor people's agency and persuade them than it is to control them. Which is easier? <laughs> Control, right? You can just make stuff happen. This is why when your kids are 16 and you're still threatening them with, if you do this, then it illustrates it because it is, because influence requires trust. It requires a relationship built on trust. That's hard, hard, hard work. 
Each of these metaphors, salt and light and yeast and leaven, these aren't, they're not passive. It's not a passive thing. It's, it's interesting these metaphors sort of enter into places in the most unexpected of ways. Right, you're walking down off military cutoff and you smell PTs. Right, whoa, it just sort of invades. And all you want is like a hamburger or whatever your favorite place. You know, you get that smell. You just didn't expect what looking for. It just sort of comes in, uninvited oftentimes. You weren't even hungry until it happened. All these metaphors are like that salt and light and fragrance. These aren't passive, but they're subversive. They move in in the most unexpected ways and into the most unexpected places. Do you realize that this way of life can get into the most difficult of places in our world, into the, most, into the darkest places in our world? So as we close, I want to read this, the rest of this chapter as a benediction. I want us just to consider what it would be like if God used us to bring this to bear on the world in which we currently live. See, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. There's redemption that is happening. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people to be a joy. I'll rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will be heard in it no more. Verse 20. Never again will there be an infant who lives but a few days. I know that is very pointed for a number of families in our congregation. I've been there. It's devastating. Never again would this happen. Or an old man or woman who does not live out their years kind of adds this poetic element. One who dies at 100, we thought to be a mere child. Be like Yoda or something. Like he'd be a mere child. And the one who dies who fails to reach 100 will be considered a curse. There's this idea that somehow your life won't be cut short. You won't, you won't, you will accomplish. Everything that you're intended to bring will be done. They will build houses and will dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. And a lot of us don't recognize the potency of this because most of us live in the houses that we built and we eat sort of the fruit of our own labor. We're self-sufficient in that way. What he's saying is this, they will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and other people live in them or plant and others eat. No longer will these systems be in play that allow one group of people to oppress and take advantage of another group of people. No longer will these things occur where one group is marginalized and continually marginalized, but instead uh, they do something at the benefit of another group of people. This is no longer gonna be the way in which the world is to operate. It's not the way the world of shalom operates. The world under the rule of God's love operates. For as the days of a tree, so be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long to enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain. 
nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune. You realize there are generations born every single day in this country, in our city, that feel like they have no hope for anything to ever be any different. And that is one generation into the next generation, into the next generation. There's a reason they call it generational poverty. Can you imagine a place where goodness can be brought into those areas? What, what does love do? Most of what is tried is let's solve the systemic problems, but love breeds worth and value into the people who are on the other end and the other side of those issues to say you have a contribution to make. There's worth and there's value. One of the things that has made me so excited over the last three or four years in our church is we've just made a huge turn in a lot of ways, kind of going from a real programmatic model of, of doing church to a very personal model. And when you listen to our staff and a lot of our key volunteers talk about the stories that move them, why do we keep doing what we're doing? It's not because we had this many people in student ministries or this many people in Treasure Island or this many people attend this event. Or They're talking about names and stories. We work in a lot of areas, food insecurity and generational poverty and all these, and, and the stories you're gonna hear have names attached to them. People in our church know them. And we're there to say your voice matters, your contribution matters, what you bring to this world matters. And sometimes it takes a very long time for someone who has lived under this kind of pressure. It takes them a very long time just to believe that. Just to believe that. Right? What if you and I could, could, could listen for a moment and just give voice to someone who feels like no one has ever heard them or to pay attention to someone who is often overlooked? Right? What, if we, what if we found a way to see this drastically different? They would not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune. You realize in our culture currently, that there is a fear of bringing kids into this world. And it's for that very reason, because they fear this ain't gonna get any better. So why should we bother doomed to misfortune? What if, what if we pushed back against that? For they would be a people blessed by the Lord. They and their descendants with them. I try to imagine a world where this would be the case. And I'm really quickly reminded, this is the world that God longs for. It's the world that he's intended. And it's the world that the source or the force of his love actually begins to bring to bear in these little small pockets Everywhere God's love comes to bear on the world. And where do you suppose God's love comes to bear? Right? Everywhere we are. That's kind of the point. Y'all, this is more available than you and I can even imagine. Can we trust that he is good enough? Can we trust in his goodness enough that we, you and I, 
would live in the way of his goodness? Can we trust that his love is powerful enough that we would trust in the power of his love to bring about the change that he longs for actually more than we do? Father, would you help us? We are so accustomed to getting our way on our terms and often attaching your name to it. Would you well up in us a deep sense of joy out of your goodness and your love for us? Father, would we encounter that in profound ways that shape us, inform us as we wrestle with this sort of crisis of loving and making things or however we would create that tension, would you be gracious to us and lead us and prompt us? Father, I ask that you would do this work in us for the sake of what you long to do through us and the redemptive activity that is available to us every single moment. We find pockets where this kind of goodness could be true for just a moment. Would you give us the courage and the faith to do it again and again and again and again? So I ask you, Father, would you make us into that kind of people? And I ask this, I believe this is your, your heart, I believe this is your promise. And I ask this in the name of your son, Jesus, who is our king. Amen. Amen.